Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be chatting to comics critic Rob Clough and comics creator Kat Chapman, all about Mimi and the Wolves by Alabaster Pizzo in the first ever meeting of the Avery Hill Book Club. But first up, some Avery Hill news. We've got two new books that have hit the shelves this month in the shape of Internet Crusader from George Wyler Soul and Mimi and the Wolves from Alabaster Pizzo. You'll hear more about Mimi and the Wolves in our conversation in a bit, but don't forget if you order Internet Crusader from us, you get a free copy of George's Portal to Hellzine, and if you order Mimi and the Wolves from us, we've also got a free book plate that will come bundled with the book as well. Both Mimi and the Wolves and Internet Crusader are also available to order from your local book or comic shop, or you can head over to averyhillpublishing.com to grab one now. And now, here's some information on another comics podcast you may enjoy. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore. You see this gradual rehabilitation of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, it's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. In other news, we'll be tabling at Thought Bubble this year on the weekend of the 9th and 10th of November at the Harrogate Convention Centre in Yorkshire. Thought Bubble is on the highlights of the UK comics year, and we're delighted to be involved once more. We'll have some new books out and a selection of our excellent backlist on sale as well. And now our chat with Rob and Kat. A bit different this month, we're going to do a book club episode where we discuss Mimi and the Wolves, Volume 1 by Alabaster Pizzo. I'm joined by a couple of uh, special guests to discuss the book and their response to it. First up, Kat Chapman, who, you know, let's reveal ourselves for what we are here, uh, also works for Avery Hall Publishing, as do I. So we're not going to be going in deep on this thing, are we? We're not going to be cutting into shreds, Kat. <laughs> no, no, I don't have any plans to do that. <laughs> and also, you know, you're, you're a, a comics creator yourself, aren't you? Kat Zine, follow me in. Yep. Yeah, I am, definitely. <laughs> and we're also joined uh, by, uh, you know, a, a very special guest. No offence, Kat, you're a special guest, but Rob's already, you've been on the show before. <laughs> Rob's never been on the show before. Uh, Rob Clow, who's a comics critic of, I would say, high renown. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Rob, Rob's not sure about that, but you are, you are. It's, um, no, um, speaking personally, uh, it's a name on the byline that makes me want to read the article. I think that's uh, the best you can hope for in any sort of form of journalism. Well, I appreciate the compliment. I uh, I write, I shout out into the darkness, and it's, <laughs> it's nice to be acknowledged from time to time. So I appreciate it. You're probably best known for your work at the Comics Journal, which again is a you know uh, an outlet of high repute. So that sort of all fits. And you have a website of your own, Hilo Comics, where you sort of do a lot of reviews and and articles that sort of let you focus on the comics you enjoy. Yep. I, uh, I have many other bylines as well. Uh, the one I'm doing most recently is uh, Daniel Elkin's Your Chicken Enemy site. I've done a lot of stuff for him, but I've been writing for the journal for well over a decade. And uh, I've had my own my own blog has actually just passed its own 10th birthday a few months ago as well. So congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah, if Your I'm, Chicken Enemy is um, a place that Avery Hill have been lucky enough to be reviewed a few times by a few different people. And again, it's always an interesting take. It's always uh, worth a look at the, the, the stuff that's going up there as well. Yeah, Dan is an excellent editor. He's really good. 
And uh, I feel, in part, if I have any renown, it's simply because um, I've outlasted a lot of people. Criticism <laughs> <laughs> takes a lot out of people. and Some people can only go for so long yeah. shouting into the void before yeah. they do something else. But <laughs> here I am. And if anything, you're sort of extending yourself further into the world of comics with the recent announcement of Field Mouse Press. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? I would love to. This is a this is a publishing concern uh, founded by myself, the aforementioned Dan Elkin, uh, the critic Alex Hoffman um, from Sequential State, and Ryan Carey. This is the initial group of people. We will be probably adding people to our core as well. Our initial reach is going to be a website called uh, Solrad. Uh, after the uh, the name of the emanata for cartooning for sun or light coming off of something, it's the uh, the actual website is solrad.co. It's going to go live on January first, and its initial focus will be on comics criticism. And we will be reaching out to a very large, diverse group of critics as we want as many different voices as possible. Shortly thereafter, we will be publishing original comics by people and publishing on the website. And down the line, another in a year or so, hopefully, uh, we also hope to be publishing actual books with spines made out of paper. And right, we've just sort of declared our existence publicly in uh, early September. And uh, we're very excited for this. And um, we talked to a lot of people at SPX, Small Press Expo, and uh, we're hoping to have some momentum. Yeah, I think it was a very exciting announcement in in comics. Just where, as I say, people like yourself, they're recognisable names that have, I think, a very clear vision and enjoy good comics. So you feel like, obviously, the first phase in terms of criticism, there's no concerns whatsoever because you're all esteemed critics. But then moving into the sort of curatorial, editorial realm as well, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see the kind of things you're you're looking to sort of showcase. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're, we're very excited and um, community is a big part of our mission. And that's why one of our missions is to bring people into the criticism sphere who may not have been asked to do so by other outlets, but who we think have very cogent and interesting things to say about comics. So that's something to be looking forward to is, some familiar faces, to be sure, but lots of lots of new voices. Well, I'd say, you know, with the core that you've put together to start off with, I think that's sort of going to inspire confidence in people and help you to attract interesting people as well. Because, you know, the, yeah, you're going to have uh, very high levels of trust going in where people are going to know that you're going to want good stuff and you're going to push good stuff. Yes, thank you. I hope so. So let's uh, pivot towards Mimi and the Wolves by Alabaster Pizza, which has just hit the shelves from Avery Hall Publishing. Um, I mean, we've all read the book now for this, if nothing else. But I was just wondering um, if either of you had read it in single issues as uh, it was coming out when Alabaster self-published originally. I did. Yep, I did as well. Um, It was Ricky uh, Ricky Miller from Avery Hill who gave them to me to read initially um, because he was a huge fan and... He sort of just lent them to me saying, oh, you should read these. They're brilliant. Before we even, because Avery Hill started distributing those in the UK as well, the self-published editions. So even before that, he was sort of lending them to me to look at because he was such a big fan. So, yeah, that's how I got hold of them. 
I got a uh, one of them in SPX, and uh, a couple I got from um, from John Porcelina's Spit and a Half when I saw if they were available. It's interesting to me when one comics publisher either decides to quit or take a hiatus. It's gratifying me to see that others will take their place because um, I became initially familiar with Alabaster through the publisher Hick and Hawk, Matt Moses. Oh, yeah. American, American publisher. Mm. And he was the one who published her first major work. Uh, it's called The Complete Talmaru. And this was a collection of, uh, of mini comics. And what was interesting about this book, and it's actually relevant to, uh, to Mimi and the Wolves as well, is that upon first glance and first reading, and reading this, it seems like, well, this is, this is very cute. These are very cute characters. And uh, I'm not sure where this is going or if this is for me or what the audience is. And I, but I kept reading it. And then these um, over-the-top visceral acts of violence just popped out on the page. <laughs> um, Talamaru is this little little creature. And there was a, like a kind of a Greek chorus of birds that were like talking to her and talking to the reader. And eventually Talamaru got tired of them and like killed them with a machine gun. And it kind of went from there. And, you know, there's like, um, it was also very sexual at points and very violent. I was just, it was, and, but still never wavering in form from this kind of cuteness. And so that, that got my immediate attention. And I, I really enjoyed that. And then I read Hellbound Lifestyle from Retrofit. And that was one of her many illustration jobs that she's done of doing someone else's writing. And um, something she noted is that, she often liked doing stuff like that when she was stuck on her own writing, simply if someone came up with some idea that she thought was funny or interesting, it would inspire her to want to draw it. And then, uh, and then when Mimi came along, uh, it was clear that like, okay, this is, this is like the mature thing. This is like, you know, what I've heard of as mature work, meaning for a young cartoonist, they have their earlier works, and then there's one where you realize they've made this big leap, conceptually, artistically, etc. And um, you know, and the handmade versions were really something, mm. uh, including you know down to like the the, the quality of the paper um, made everything about that you know a visceral experience. You know, I think it's Avery Hill's credit that the book itself looks as good as it does. And captures as much of um, that initial thrill as uh, as the originals did. I think as well, just in terms of the production of the book, I think there's been a real sort of deliberate effort to have that same sort of warmth that you get from something that's made by someone personally. So things like little touches, like the handwritten font for the bibliographic bibliographic info at the start, just to sort of sort of soften things so it doesn't feel too much like you know something made by a machine so to speak and and keeping all things like you know um there's lovely little sort of frontis pieces and title pages and and obviously things like the map and the the drawings of the cast the nice little touches that do sort of keep that personality to it, i think yeah i definitely agree and of course with the maps you're sort of like playing with almost immediately playing with that convention of uh, a fantastical story, you know, it evokes things like 
sort of Tolkien and George R. R. Martin and Earthsea and you know these fictional places that are mapped at the start to sort of to ground you but also open up the space to you as well and give you an idea of the, the sort of scale of the piece you know that includes up into like other decorative stuff like the end piece some of the additional illustrations here and there which kind of fits in with the the look of the book as well where there's a lot of a lot of things that would appear to be sort of uh decorative elements but they're sort of incorporated so nicely into the story itself the dream sequences obviously being the sort of the obvious example where there is a lot of, of, of play with sort of pattern and shape isn't there yeah i think some of the page layouts are just really beautiful um where she has these sort of curved panels and semi-circular panels and things um that's one thing i particularly enjoy about it um because i just turn to these pages and think wow I, i've never thought to do a panel like that <laughs> I guess and they really suit the kind of world that she's created as well. Yeah, actually, the uh, her page design is an interesting kind of underrated strength of hers in that if you go page to page to page, she rarely repeats the same kind of grid pattern twice. Yeah. And, you know, when you're reading a comic, how you design your grid largely determines the pacing of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so if you have a lot of if you have like one or two panels on the page it's it's meant to be you know you're kind of slowly looking at the action and if a lot of panels on a single page you're meant to go from panel to panel very quickly kind of you know race across the page but then like the shape if you have a steady grid the reader becomes familiar with it and then the grid kind of falls away because they're so used to the pattern it's like going down a flight of stairs but when everything is different every page, it kind of resets your eye on every single page, making you think, okay, what's happening here? What's happening here? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's really effective here as well, just where, you know, if, if I had to choose probably one word to describe Mimi and the Walls, you'd go for sort of uncanny, wouldn't you? It sort of keeps you off balance all the time. And I think, as you say, the sort of the gridding of the pages really helps with that just in terms of keeping you on your toes and I think subliminally sort of like setting that tone of things not necessarily being you know how they're presented and and you know what what you'd expect from this story at any point yeah the, um, as as Rob mentioned the the contrast between the, the cute visual style and the sort of darkness of the subject matter in at times is something that I really enjoy about it and I think a comparison that people sometimes make is Toby Janssen the Moomin uh, creator whose mm -hmm. work I really love I wrote an essay about it when I was at university uh, I really love the novels um, even more than than her comics but I think it's I think that's a good comparison because um, she does this thing where it looks like this sort of kid-friendly, cute thing, but really there's a lot more going on, and it's sort of this world of uncertainty and darkness and violence and things, and that does take you by surprise when you you've just you kind of think you know what you're getting when you look at the artwork, but it's but it's not. And there's also this kind of existential feel where all the characters are kind of trying to figure themselves out and figure out what life is all about um which i think is the central thing in in tove's work and i think that's the same with this book as well very much so and um 
I did an interview with Alabaster recently, which should be coming on the Comics Journal at some point soon. And something I'd read elsewhere is that, um, when I asked her about it, this work is autobiographical. Obviously not in the sense that Alabaster lives in a magical village and whatnot, <laughs> but that, uh, this, is, this is a book about various kinds of relationships and the ways in which they become toxic. Mm. Uh, and in particular, even when shedding one toxic relationship uh, meaning in particular kind of shifts to another relationship, which is toxic in its own way. Yeah. You know, in, in the book, we go from her first partner, Bobo, who Mimi felt was limiting her. And then she struck up this relationship with Ergot the wolf, who eventually becomes paternalistic with both her and his partner, Ivy. And he, he lavishes them with praise and gives them attention, but he demands unswerving loyalty and and a monopoly on their time and then the other wolf she meets nero you know is the quintessential bad boy <laughs> he's exciting and he's dangerous and he says a lot of things and doesn't seem to mean a lot of them and is manipulating her you know this is a, it's a series of relationships that are abusive each in their own way and each time she thinks she's being a, given a gift by someone that gift comes with conditions and danger and especially in the first three books this is someone who's trying to figure herself out and hasn't hasn't figured it out yet the thing that i find really fascinating about mimi as a character is after that first sort of relationship breakup that she has she kind of talks about how she's she's always she's never been by herself she's always surrounded herself with people to avoid sort of having to look at herself and she kind of takes the breakup as an opportunity to do that um, and yet she goes straight as you were saying into these other friendships and other relationships and she's she's still trying to define herself in relation to other people so I'm really interested to see how the story develops from this point because I think that's an, uh, an interesting contradiction in her character. There's the underlying thing as well where she's sort of dragged into this kind of feud between very or rivalry between the various wolf packs and right. there's that underlying thing where they're constantly looking to use her because she can do things that they can't in relation to this this magical world that they're trying to sort of explore more so as comfortable and as as loved as she feels at times in those relationships there's still the underlying thing of she's there because she has a value to them beyond herself it's what she can do that they can't which I think, you know, oh, you know, it, it's quite poignant on a few occasions there. Mm, yeah. And uh, the Moomin comics, I can confirm from Alabaster, is a huge part of Alabaster's interest. And, uh, you know, actually, I asked her straight out, are you, are you using a cute style to subvert as a way, you know, you're subverting a cute style with all these themes? And she said, no, it's just the way I draw. <laughs> I'd like to draw this way. I'm not trying to subvert anything. And if it comes out that way on the page, it's just kind of, it's, just, it's an intuitive thing for her. I think it works really well though, because when the story kind of touches on, it, it never does anything really explicitly, but it touches on kind of sex and drugs and things. I think the style really 
makes that work somehow. Um, whereas if, if you depict that stuff in a realistic way, it can be kind of embarrassing or it can be hard to do it right. But somehow the, the distance that the style gives makes makes that work for me somehow. I agree. I think it heightens impact as well. Like, I, again, I don't know how deliberate it was, but there is a feeling, I think, in the first part of the book where, you know, when she settled with Boba, which is understandable, that's going to be the sort of the gentlest part of the book, so to speak. But it is, there's, you know, a, a very sort of gentle feel to the, the look of it and the, the, the tone of it. And even there's like a bit where I guess Mimi like bangs her thumb or drop, but she says, uh, she drops something, she's like drat, which is a very sort of like, you know, archaic way of you know showing displeasure and then when her and bobo uh, end up having the sort of argument that ends it all it's like fuck you this is bullshit and it has like <laughs> yeah you know, i'm always interested in how swearing is used and rather than it sort of like being thrown around you know needlessly it's sort of like for, for that point particularly the fact that you had that earlier sort of use of the word drat to contrast with it you suddenly you know oh, this has escalated far beyond what we expected and far what the sort of images are going to lead you to believe that you know we're looking at yeah i think she wrote she writes that sequence where that relationship breakdown so well um it's genuinely quite upsetting when it happens (laughs) and it's kind of signaled that it's coming but um yeah i was really drawn in by that point it's really well written as well just where as bobo's leaving he like tells her where he's going and like, it's quite clear she just couldn't care less. So I don't know if that's like, you know, planting something to be revisited in a later part of the story. But it did feel like the sort of thing that someone was who was leaving but kind of regretted that they were leaving would say, hoping that, you know, it would like leave the door open to, you know, a reconciliation. But it just felt really sad where he's like, I'm going to be down at the door. I've always wanted to visit there. She's like, OK. <laughs> and that did, all felt very real. Yeah, very yeah, very true and, and real. But it's interesting because the way she depicts it is, you know, he's going off on her basically because she wants to do things differently and he completely rejects it. And he starts wrecking things and smashing things and never really apologizes for anything he does or says other than saying, I'll clean it up later. And that really spoke as like a true like thing that like someone an abusive person does, you know, when, when kind of pushed to this new place, he's not able to like cope or figure it out in any way that's like healthy for both of them. He wants things one way. And if it's not that way, then that's his immediate reaction. Mm. And, um, and then he said like, her response was just like, it was very interesting at that point. Cause it was obvious that she had been chafing for a while and then when he actually kind of showed his true colors, it was very easy to, for, for her at that point to say, fine. It also speaks to a degree to her, mature, her immaturity later because you get the sense she got everything out of him that she could possibly get. And it was clear that she was no longer getting what she needed in her life. And that's why she was turning to these other new people for these things instead of try, being able to find it on her own. So it speaks both to like, that was a good, smart, healthy move, but you know, she was, she still had plenty, she still has plenty of work to do to develop as a person. I thought that scene had sort of really sad echoes later on as well, where her, her sister comes around to visit and points out how untidy the place is. And she says, oh yeah, Bobo used to do tidying up. But you sort of get the, the idea that the last thing he did before he leaves is wreck the place. And it feels like 
the sort of you know that that's how trauma can echo you know you, you, something gets broken it's harder to fix it and tidy it up than you know th- than it feels like it should be so sometimes these things don't get fixed or tidied up and they just sort of linger you know where you're living and how you're feeling and furthermore if it's if tidying up was something that was important to him you know it's a form of like rebelling against that yeah like well he cared about it i don't so i'm not gonna do it yeah did you find reading it as a piece uh, a very different experience? Did you get anything particularly from that that not that you'd missed from the uh, individual issues, but did, did you see the value of it as a, as a sort of larger piece? Oh, uh, sure. The mythology is a lot clearer when read as a piece, for example. Yeah, there's some lovely world building, isn't there? That I think sort of happens in moments and is a lot easier to sort of read and recognize as a, a longer piece. And, you know, there's, by the third book, there's two dozen characters, <laughs> you know, who each have, with varying degrees of importance, you know, initially, and it was just a lot easier to keep track of who was who. Yeah, definitely. And it, it did, rereading it left me really keen to see what happens next <laughs> in the story. One thing I picked up, probably my favourite little bit of tiny world building, and I don't even know how deliberate it was, it could have just been a throwaway line, but the bit where the uh post birds uh, arguing about the letter that has to get uh yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> and uh one of them says to the other it's all right for you you're an albatross all you do is like fly for hours at a time and i was like oh wow is there a whole thing where like different breeds of bird do different kinds of uh deliveries in the postal system <laughs> on this one is there any sort of grid i can get <laughs> that tells me who's doing who's doing like your express freight delivery <laughs> But again, I don't know if it's the throwaway line or whether, uh, you know, Alabaster's put so much thought into it. She's like, I think the the, the long-haul flights would be albatrosses. Like, they're built for that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It is almost, it's clear that Alabaster's thoroughly thought out a lot of these details and only introduces them as per necessary. Because um, it is primarily, it's a character piece and it's a mythology piece. One of the things I like about the book is that there are no purely purely heroic or villainous characters. Everyone is some kind of shade of gray. Yeah. And that vagueness is a deliberate strategy because, you know, I mean, look at Bobo. He was nice and helpful, and then he also did some abusive things. And it kind of gets to the point where no one's good or evil. Individual people at different times can choose to do good or bad things. And in those moments, he chose to do, you know, some, some really horrible things. And the same goes for Mimi, who, you know, is the putative protagonist, but she's often selfish and thoughtless. Uh, she frequently doesn't tell the truth. She sometimes takes advantage of others. And it, it kind of goes down the line. Everyone is just, you know, their motivations, what they've done, it's all a little bit vague. You know, even up to and including um, the character of uh, Kiko, who I thought was very interesting, who is this, like, almost too-good-to-be-true character in terms of how nice they are. They're like a holy fool, aren't they? They're just sort of so pure of heart, just sort of serenading people, and even the character design with the wide eyes and the permanent smile. (laughs) Yeah. 
But then the letter, uh, when I saw the letter was f- for them, I was like, okay, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> They're not all they cracked up to be. It's going to be an issue here. <laughs> it, interestingly, because I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me in the story. Uh, Alabaster says that Kiko is non-binary. Ah, right. I did notice that, yeah, they were referred to as he and she by different characters. Mm-hmm. I instinctively said they there just because I, you know, I didn't pick up any obvious gender from the, the, the book, but. Good looking but, out. But, yeah, but by the same token, didn't sort of, didn't read to me as non-binary character, which I guess is a well-written non-binary character. This is, you know, Kiko is clearly a character who they are someone who constantly reinvents themselves and goes from place to place. And sometimes that leaves emotional tragedies behind, as that letter kind of reveals. Everyone in this book, they want, they want something. You know, what does Mimi want? Mimi wants knowledge. Mimi wants to know what these dreams mean that have haunted her throughout her whole life, what her destiny is. The thing I liked about that's, again, you know, in terms of subverting genre, you know, we get the whole vibe throughout the book that Mimi is some kind of chosen one. You know, that she's important. But as we kind of learn, we, uh, we're introduced to this kind of the dream vision of Venus that the wolves worship and that Mimi saw. And then there's this other spirit, Severine, who seems to be this malignant force. And then by the end, we realize that, oh, well, they may not be so different in terms of what they want. And it kind of plays against, it's like, Mimi may well have a prophecy or a fate or something like that, but it may not be a good one. And it also she gets could... back to the idea of, you know, Mimi is looking for help and knowledge from, you know, these people, including the, the characters that she dreams about. But you feel it could also just end up in another situation where she is of value to them because there's something she can do that they can't. You, know, you could fall into that that trap again exactly. of the relationship, even with the sort of magical godlike overtones to it. It could still be a case of maybe this god wants help from you rather than to offer you help. I thought in terms of the um, the sort of dream sequences, I loved, and it gets back to what we were talking earlier about the sort of the page designs, but I thought the sort of, particularly the sort of the clouds and smoke uh, aspects to it, which are sort of, they're dense and they fill the panels and fill the page, but are insubstantial. So it's sort of like, taps into you know the 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 dreamlike quality of 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 the page and like you know dream sequences are often very difficult to do in an interesting way i think but i think she's done a a brilliant job here yeah i was i was just going to say that i in general i love her artwork in this book the the way she draws characters is very expressive and facial expressions and character interactions as well the way they sort of physically relate to each other i just think she draws that really brilliantly and it's so different because the only other book I've read by her was um, Hellbound Lifestyle, which is such a different feel visually. But I, I don't know, I was just really enjoying the way she draws the characters. And as you say, those dream sequences, really interesting way to present it visually. Yeah, Mimi is more akin to um, Talamaru in terms of like the setting, the character design and things like that. But this is like Mimi is considerably more sophisticated in terms of the storytelling. And the dream sequences are real, kind of show a lot of that. And I think they're interesting because one way she gets across the idea that these are dreams, these are visions, is her use of decorative detail. Like there's a there's a single page which has all this kind of 
weird, horrific imagery on it. Uh, you know, demons and snakes and bodies with severed fish heads. And if you look at the borders, it's set in this alternating slanted black and white diagonal at the top. And then on the next page, when you see her kind of in her dream and she's being approached by somebody who's trying to harm her, the individual planter panels are on slants. And in between them are these like black triangular panels with these white floral designs in them. And again, it's not narrative, but it really gets at the sense of like something fantastical is happening here. And it is very different from her actual regular pages. It's just like a, a smart, economical, and vivid way of expressing this without doing it in a more obvious way. I think it's sort of key to tone as well, just sort of a great way of establishing tone and, and you know, arousing emotion in the reader. But as you say, without doing it in a, a really sort of obvious, clunky way, it's sort of uh, subliminal and uh, works a treat. And it's early in the book where we went from this kind of idyllic depiction of her life to something that is like absolutely terrifying. She's, she's, a, uh, Alabaster is establishing the stakes in this book very early on. <laughs> just to go back to uh, character design quickly one of the things i wanted to praise as well is the fact that you have uh, I, I don't know at least at least six to eight different wolves that all look very different and it's really smart just how their body shape color the shape of their individual snouts and eyes they're sort of clearly different characters even though they're also clearly within the same species in the book her using this sort of moomin style you know, still very clear line, but very cartoony and cute. I actually think gave her a lot of flexibility to draw things in a lot of different ways that like a more naturalistic style would have made more difficult. When you have more iconic style with a little less detail, simply changing one or two details in a character makes all the difference from character to character to character. And she really took advantage of that and ran with it. Another nice little point on species is there's a little bit in the book where forget who it is, Copper maybe, but someone sort of says, uh, what sort of creature is Mimi? And uh, apparently she's telling everyone she's a mouse. But, like, she is a human, isn't it? She's like, she's the only human in the whole place and surrounded by all these fantastical creatures. Well, she does have a tail. Oh, does she? Yeah, I think she does. It's it's small, so I think she is like a mouse. mouse. (laughs) Yeah, a mouse creature. Yeah, they also say that she is something else, but it's at this point it's kind of vague, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you if you and that tail is very subtle. Yeah, it's it, a line, it, isn't it? Just ah, right, line. okay. It's a single black line. But I guess yeah, as well, that's me reading it, sort of thinking of it as being autobiographical and Mimi as alabaster. So you know, she's drawn herself essentially as herself in the book. But yeah, that works, uh, makes sense. Like, but at the same time, I mean, I think I think that's true. Mimi does look a lot like Alabaster, actually, yeah. down to like the haircut. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the very small, fine tail, just a very, <laughs> a very subtle tail. <laughs> yes, she, her tail is very subtle. <laughs> As are, uh, and there's actually one uh, panel I'm looking at. Mimi is smiling broadly, and you can see two little fangs. Ah, right. um, that kind of also kind of tip you off. Again, it's like it's subtle. Yeah, yeah. It's um now Mimi may well be the only mouse I think that is depicted in this whole story. 
And it's just kind of interesting because something I didn't think about before, but like, you know, in terms of the food chain, the mouse is kind of at the bottom. Yeah. 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 She's constantly, you know, a mouse is hanging out with all these predators on a constant basis. Again, also, we might be reading too much into it, but there's also that sort of cultural undercurrent where the mouse is the smallest feature, but often the scariest. You know, that whole idea of, like, elephants are scared of mice. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, just that kind of thing of, like, maybe this character is the mouse, but it turns out the mouse is the scariest one of all of them. Who knows? We'll we'll find Mm. out in volume two. (laughs) (laughs) She clearly has secret power. Mm. Yeah. That she can... It's 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 made very explicit. She can do things no one else can do in terms of using these magical objects. And, can and get that, into the spaces as well to get the magical objects. Exactly. Yeah. And that to this point she's being manipulated into doing it. And then we're wondering at a certain point, when is she really gonna find her own agency? Yeah. Alabaster told me that the story as it stands is about half done. So there's a lot left. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that how much more was going to come. Yeah, she says she's working on part four right now. And yeah, it, it, it took her. It's interesting because you know, this autobiographical story she was talking about. She said came about eight years ago, and the first one was published five years ago, 2014, was it? Yeah, that sounds right. That yeah. sounds right. So not too long after. And um, one gets a sense that, you know, it's been it's been important for her to kind of let this germinate, as she said, kind of process things. Yeah. Process the events, I think, will make the second part even more cohesive. Although I think, you know, the first first three form a really pretty tight story. Well, just in terms of the, the structure, again, one of the things that really sort of came to the fore for me really as a piece is the sort of the you can sort of see the the structure of the three individual issues she did and like each one finishes on a cliffhanger of some kind or really sort of like big moment and in each one you have like these nice cold opens where there's like a little bit that sort of leads into the main story but isn't necessarily uh directly connected and and i think really does a great job again of opening the world up and expanding things and it, it just comes across as something really well written for what is essentially her first sort of long form work, I think. It, it, it truly is. And you can see her arc as a creator, like I said, really coming through in this book. Because, you know, the first, Talamaru was the first. And that wound up being, I don't know, 75 pages of, of these mini comics that a pretty loose story. It was very episodic. It was more about like tone and attitude than story. And most of it seemed very clearly improvised. And then she's just kind of figured it out in other ways. It's kind of interesting, like, in terms of just who she is as a creator and where she stands. You know, she's a little bit older now. You know, she's nearing 30. And as she said, she's kind of gone from this very poor, starving artist lifestyle. And now she has an animator job at the Cartoon Network. (laughs) She's like, I don't regret anything I did, but I also enjoy doing things like paying my rent. And, (laughs) um, you know, she's she's not glorifying being a starving artist as some kind of key to creativity at all. And uh, is very much having the opportunity in the room 
to like not have to worry about certain things in this case is I think going to make her more creative and allow her to focus more on the story. I think it'll, uh, I think it'll take a lot less time for her to finish the, the last, the second half than the entire first half. Let me just put it that way. And it'd be interesting as well to see how, you know, not her approach changes, but just like see how she's developed as an artist. You know, as you say, five years ago, she starts the story and she's going to be working on the next bit now. So, you know, she can't help but have developed new ideas about storytelling, character. You know, the artwork, I guess, is pretty locked in. But then even then, she's got the, the sort of scope, as we talked about, to do, you know, incorporate design elements and page layouts that could be pretty wild. So it should be interesting to see the next phase. Yeah, very much so. Can I have a quick question for you, just thinking about it today, knowing I was going to be talking to you. I just wondered, obviously, last year from Avery Hill Publishing, you released Follow Me In, which was an autobiographical story about a trip you took to Mexico a few years back. And I just wondered, had you always sort of seen that as being an autobiographical story that you tell in that way? Or were you ever tempted to sort of fictionalise it or use it to sort of tell fictional stories as a sort of springboard to get into character? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I'd always envisaged doing it the way I did it, but that's because I think my my go-to kind of comfort zone is autobiographical stuff. I mean, 99% of the stuff in my zines is autobiographical. Um, so that that is what springs to mind for me every time I start to think about a project. Um, I Stories from my own life spring to mind, and it just seems to be the the kind of natural and obvious way for me to tell those stories but my my next book for Avery Hill is fiction um so that's a whole big step for me and it's quite terrifying honestly <laughs> but I mean all fiction is kind of autobiographical to a degree anyway but now I'm yeah I'm practicing these things that that we're talking about with this book a little bit of trying to think how to I don't know how to dramatize these things into something that's not just a straight autobiographical story. All fiction is autobiographical and all autobiography is fiction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and in the sense that if you're telling your own story, you're choosing certain bits to tell. It's from your point of view. Yeah. Even if you tell them with 100%, you know, veracity at the time, it's still only those details from you. And in most autobiography, you know, details are smoothed over here or there for the purpose of the narrative. Characters are combined, blah, blah, blah. So it's emotionally true. Um, it's just not the same thing as like being a 100% accurate record of something. Yeah. And, uh, and with your book, the simple choice to do so much of it in um that beautiful, gorgeous colored pencil. Mm -hmm. That in itself was like a storytelling decision because what you saw on that trip was so profoundly important to you. The, the beauty of it, the brightness and vividness of it. And to have done it in any other way would have not told the story correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Definitely. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because I've, you know, I know Ricky is, you know, the main engine behind Avery Hill in terms of like, you know, the sort of the inception and, and whatnot, but I can't necessarily quite pick up on a, an, an aesthetic pattern in your books. 
I've said that to Ricky even before I started working for Overhill. I worked at Gosh Comics in London. And oh, wow, yeah. As I'd sort of seen new books coming out, I'd be like, this looks like nothing else they've put out but fits perfectly. <laughs> you know, you can just visualise them all sitting next to each other on the table. And I say it to him so many times. I was like, it's weird. I don't know what you've done where there's no overall aesthetic, but there's definitely a kinship between all these works. It's really interesting. It's true. And it's true. And that really speaks to a publisher who has an idea of what they like. I don't know if you, either of you were familiar with uh, Sparkplug comic books, yes. Dylan Williams. Yeah. We put two books next to each other. and It's like, you know, completely unrecognizable. <laughs> um, but as a whole, it fit into Dylan's entire aesthetic, which was he had very wide tastes and he had a, he had a real sense especially working with younger cartoonists of what they were capable of, even if they didn't quite know it. And he gave no editing advice at all, ever. He would pick you for a project. And the most he would say is, okay, I want you to do a long book and take your time. <laughs> yeah, that would be the extent. Or he might say to someone, Hey, you might want to watch this movie. I think you might find it interesting or whatnot. And, uh, and then, you know, sure enough, they would come out and they would do their best work because he had real faith in them. And he never begrudged anyone for moving on to like a larger publisher. And so with Ricky, it's like, it's, you know, so many of the talents he's worked, he works with are young and he just has an eye, you know, Tilly Walden being the most obvious example. Uh, that was, that was <laughs> the fine of the decade, basically. <laughs> She's in, she's in variety this weekend. <laughs> um, like onwards and upwards. Incredible. It's like it's like Zainab, you know, publishing Rosemary Valero O'Connell's mini comics. Yeah. It's like you just have an eye. Yeah. And yeah, then they another great example of a curatorial eye that is just spot on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of them look beautiful. All of them are completely different. And uh and it's valuable as a publisher because it's like, well, you don't like this? Well try this. You might like that better. <laughs> you yeah, might like James Stokoe's version of uh, Godzilla, and <laughs> you probably will. Right. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> and I think Rick, that's something Ricky's always talked about is that he he was sort of saying that he never resents any creators for who kind of go on to work with bigger publishers because that's how exactly how we see the role of Avery Hill is kind of supporting new creators and kind of um, allowing them to step up to bigger and better things. And big publishers can't afford to take risks on new creators often. So it's, it's, I think it is an important role. And it speaks to the scene in the UK in general, which, um, I mean, it's funny. There is a time in there early, you know, 80s, early 90s, where independent publishing in general was like a big thing. And then it all collapsed mm. and kind of, kind of imploded in the, in the, in the mid to late nineties. And in the last 10, 15 years, scenes like this publisher after publisher of various sizes and aesthetic interests, you know, from the larger ones like no Brown self-made hero. And then to you and uh, you know, and, and some of the other, and some of the smaller presses, I'm just, I'm really impressed by your scene. You know, and I've been, I've been covering it, for quite a long time, you know, since the rise of, you know, some of the smaller presses. 
yeah, it was really exciting just working at Gosh, seeing all this incredible stuff coming from so many different directions. And as you say, from different, that was an interesting as well, just different sized outlets and operations. So you had sort of Nobrow, which sort of was obviously really well resourced and could afford mm-hmm. to, you know, go really high in terms of um, production design and print quality and, you know, really sort of um, spent money making interesting work that looked great. You know, so it, 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 it was a really sort of inspirational time to be involved in any part of comics, I think. It still is. still is a really sort of, even, you know, including, as I say, the recent announcement of Field Mouse Press. Like, I'm just fascinated to see what's going to come out of, of that sort of groupthink. Publishing is cyclical. People go in and out of it, you know. I liked Hick and Hawk quite a bit, and Matt basically he's had to do other things, and he's not doing any more. You know, and Kayama Press is shutting down after this year. But then you've got, you know, Cardamoneer is doing Diskette Press. Shortbox is becoming a big thing. It's like for everyone that shuts down, two new ones pop up. And uh, I think it speaks to the, the real thirst for people to have these outlets. And, um, and in particular, people... You know, I've alluded to earlier, who weren't necessarily welcome. It's happening now in schools, but in another ten years, five to ten years, there'll be more women making comics than men. Is my prediction? Because if you look at the composition in the U.S. of comics uh, schools and art programs, from what I'm hearing, is that those classes are now twenty years ago it would be like three percent women. And now it's like 60 to 70 percent women. Yeah, I was going to say, I've looked at sort of uh, graduating classes from illustration courses in the UK, like Falmouth, which is a sort of very sort of prestigious, important one. Some really interesting people have come out of it in the last few years. And when you look at the sort of end of year shows and graduating classes, it does feel like 70 percent female students are graduating, which is, you know, fascinating. But also it's brilliant stuff coming out. So, And even at SPX, a show that... I've been going since 1997 and at the time that most of the exhibitors and attendees were white men is now more women than men and a very strong preponderance of um, young queer voices and and, uh, people of color. I'm sensing there's about, there's a, a generational shift every four to five years where the show looks a little bit different and we're about to hit that. I, I saw the hints of it this year. And the latest shift looks really, really interesting. Where like you've got all these young creators who've just been brought up reading everything. <laughs> they've been reading manga. They've been reading Raina Telgemeier. They've been reading superhero comics. They've been reading autobiography. And it's all just comics. There's no differentiation. It's just all the same thing in ways that there were divides before. And they're taking all of this and they're you know, coming up with really new and exciting things. Yeah, I think we're getting and, to a point now where we're going to end up with, like, the first creator who's equally obsessed with Smile and Berserk making another sure. comic, and it's going to be incredible. It's going like, to be like, be like nothing we've seen before, and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, and, and, and why not? It's yeah. like, it's Absolutely. great. And, and that That's what person we're here for. Might, That's what we're all here for, the new exciting stuff, isn't it? And, and it's... and. I mean, and, and certainly working for Avery Hill, this must be incredibly exciting. Your mission is to like find these young people <laughs> and to give them this opportunity and this platform to like figure out what they want to do. 
just just getting back to it, I was, I was going to leave it because I thought it'd be funny. But um, as well as Ricky, there is a guy called Dave who is the co-founder of Avery Hill. And uh, I was, I was, I was, you know what? I was going to let it go and just sort of uh, just leave Dave as the forgotten. But the thing is, like, I think Ricky is. Ricky runs the uh, Twitter, for example. So he's very much he's the public face, and yet we still do okay. But uh, <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave is co-founder, and you know it, it is the really interesting thing as well, where you know they're basically the editors, so they're going out and just bringing the projects to us for us to, you know, uh, myself and Kat to sort of help to sell to shops, get press coverage and whatnot. But they both do like it's so. Kat will tell you as well. It's so exciting when. We get like announcements for creators before anything else, before a title or a concept or anything. And you sort of Google them and see the sort of stuff they're doing. You're like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And then Ricky will give us little bits and pieces about what the project's going to be. And it does, the excitement builds for us as, as much as for anyone, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, again, you f- you finding Tilly amazing. That was Ricky, to be fair. <laughs> I know. It's not going to give any credit I, for that. I mean, let's not. <laughs> I talked in length to her about it and she was like, yeah, he approached me like in high school. He was looking at my, my webcomic and I was just like, Oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So it was like, you know, give me a year. So like she was in CCS for part of the year. And then, yeah. then she just unleashed this torrent. <laughs> um, yeah, Once she was ready, she was really ready. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's a trend I've noticed that there's more prodigies these days because you have these young people who are just so steeped in comics and this have these ridiculous work ethics. Like basically, you know, Tilly wakes up like every day, at like six in the morning and just works all day and then goes to bed at like eight o'clock or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, she's 22 years old or whatever she is now. It's just like drawing gives her pleasure. But as you say, when she was at CCS, she was like getting up at four in the morning to spend two hours working on her book for us before then yep. working on her work for the course before then yep. going out all day to, to study on the course and then coming back in the evening and going to bed. I mean, you know, incredible, uh, ap- you know, application, which, you know, as well as obviously being an incredibly gifted creator. It's an unstoppable combination, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's more of them. There will be more. Rosemary is another example. I spotted her work when she was a freshman at MCAD and they had some student work up on the wall and I immediately zeroed in on her use of color. And I was like, who is this? <laughs> and I wrote to her and I said, your work is very interesting. Do you have some comics to send me for review? And she said, well, I haven't actually done any real comics yet, which is hilarious, but you know, when I do, I'll send it to you. And then, like, three years later, she's got every tool in the toolbox. She can do anything. And the best news now, after this book, is that she has a two-book contract with First Second to write to write and draw her next two books. Oh, fantastic. So the training wheels are coming off. <laughs> Rob, I'm going to let you go. So you can that sounds great. At least some of your weekends not talking to us on Google Hangouts. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it was a great deal of fun. I'm happy to come back anytime you want me. I'm sure we'll take you off on that offer. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. You take care. Um, Kat, thank you as well. No problem. <laughs> thank you, Kat. <laughs>
sort of no. obligatory, you know, have to, like, you know, pretend I'm polite, I guess. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye. Thanks to Rob and Kat again for joining us. And thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.